listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. Last week, man, what a great Easter weekend around DCC. I mean, we, it, was, it was a blowout weekend from the extravaganza to the, the sunrise service, three services in this room, and then launching the new Trenton campus, and then, of course, everything God did at the FWRC through the three services that they watched. Just an amazing, amazing weekend around here, and we started a, a new series called He Had to Go There, and last week was about the physical places that Jesus had to go. He had to come to us. That, that's, that's, that was the Father's plan. He had to come to us. We know that he had to go to the cross. We know that he had to go to the grave. He had to descend into Hades. There was work that had to be done there, so he had to go there. And, and he had to ascend to the Father. Um, and he's preparing a place for us that where he is, there we may be also. Every one of those physical destinations, they mean something to us. But today, I, I want this series, and for the remainder of this series, we're, we're going to take a turn with this, and, and I want to dive into the statements and quotes that Jesus had to make, like he had to go there, he had to say these things. And, and I want us to start looking at those, and, and as I said last week, everything that Jesus said was calculated, everything that Jesus said was on purpose, he didn't use idle words, he didn't stumble upon a quote. He was intentional with his words. And today we're going to begin looking at some of those quotes and the things that, that Jesus dared to say. Because he said some things that were challenging. And we're going to look at some of those, those quotes today. If you've ever had one of those moments where a parent leaves a small child with you and, and the child doesn't want the parent to leave, like they, they have this sense that mom or dad is about to leave, and it, it, it brings this fear or, or something upon the child. Um, and if you've ever had that moment that you're the one that's the caregiver now for that child when mom or dad leaves, then, then you can relate to the fear that I'm about to share with you. Uh, there's no doubt that, that some of our children's workers, uh, probably our nursery workers even today, have probably experienced this already. I mean, this morning, there was probably a child that was dropped off, and, and, and they have realized you're not there, and, and they're crying right now. <laughs> Bless their hearts. You left them. You left them. No, I'm just kidding. They're in good hands, I promise you. Um, but you know how this happens. Mom and dad, they check the child in, and, and, and when the child realizes that, that they're being left behind, they start screaming. You know, they lose their minds, and, and, and nothing can console them. Last week, last week, I thought that we were about to have one of those moments in our home because our, uh, my daughter-in-law, Mariah, um, she, every morning she comes and she drops, knocks off for Mandy. My wife is now a stay-at-home grandmother, and, and she, she doesn't come to the church office anymore like she used to. She's now staying at home and, and taking care of Knox so that my son and his wife can work. And um, everything has been cool. Everything's been good. And last week, something happened. And, and, and I'm wondering where this is going to take us. Because Mariah was walking out of the door. And, and she said bye to Knox. And usually he smiles, you know, and, and as one of us are, are holding him. Sometimes I'm there. I'm not always there. But sometimes I'm there when she drops him off. I, sometimes I intentionally wait till she drops him off. So I can get, you know, a little pop rock love. And, and then hand him off. And then I'll go to, go to the office. But I'm watching as Mariah says, says bye, and his little lip, it, his lip came out, and he was like, 
And I thought, oh no. He now realizes that he doesn't have to agree with who he's being left with. Like up until this moment, he was like a sack of potatoes. You know, just whoever has him, has him. And, and I saw this and I thought, uh-oh, this is not good. And, 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 and um, we quickly diverted his attention and the crisis was avoided and, and nothing happened. Praise God. But I'm wondering, like now I'm wondering, what's going to happen when this kid realizes that he's being dropped off and, and maybe he doesn't want mom to leave? What's, what's going to happen? And so y'all pray for us. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. There was this moment in time that Jesus told his disciples that he was going to leave them. We touched on it a little bit last week, but, but he, he told them, I, I have to go. I, I've got to leave. And as you can imagine, this, this stirred up some fear, some anxiety, some concern in the hearts of the disciples. Having just left the upper room, having just walked out of the upper room and the, the last supper and the first communion with his disciples, um, it's at that moment that, that Jesus realizes that Peter is concerned. And as Peter often did, he was the first one to speak up. Peter had no problem opening mouth and inserting foot. That's what, that's what Peter did. And so Peter speaks up and just says what everybody else is thinking. And, and, and uh, he inquires of Jesus. And I want to read this to you in, in John 16 and verse 36. I'm going to be reading from John uh, 13 and, and 14 today. John, John chapters 13 and 14. But I want you to listen to this one verse in John 13 and 36 and listen to what Simon Peter inquired of Christ. And, and he said these words. It, it said, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? So Jesus tells him, I, I've got to go. I, I'm going to be leaving soon. He says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. It's interesting. He says, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm going somewhere, but the timing's not right for you to go with me. We know why now. Christ was about to put the hands of the church, in the, I mean, the, the work of the church in the hands of the apostles. And so there's work to be done. But, but he tells him, he said, I, I'm leaving, and where I'm going, you can't go right now, but one day you, you will, afterward you will. Sensing this concern and anxiety of his followers, Jesus then does something that, that I think in our, in our fail human nature that we fail to do often. He senses this concern, and then Jesus comforts his disciples. Now think about this. At this critical moment when Jesus needed encouragement from the disciples, he was actually encouraging them. Is that not just like our God? Think about this. Is that not just like God? Because I see it happening right now. I see it happening in my life. I see it happening in our church. I see it happening with the Christian church, the global Christian church, that at a time when Christianity is in crisis, and, and when, you, when I say that, what I mean by that is that we, we are worried. We're worried. We're worried about the world that we're raising our children in. We're worried about what we have to go through. We are concerned about our moral values. And at a critical moment right now, this is just like our God in, in a time of chaos and discomfort in a season where the word of God is being challenged left and right. And it is, church. At a time when holiness and sanctification are being questioned. 
I didn't expect any amens there. I didn't. At a time when holiness and sanctification are being questioned, listen to me, church. I, I know that we can't do anything to get there. I'm going to talk about it in just a moment. I know we can't earn it. But, but there is a responsibility for the Christian. There is a responsibility for us to try and, and live a, a life that is holy and sanctified and set apart unto God. Amen. We're not supposed to look like the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. Right. And, and so when holiness and sanctification are being questioned at a time when Christ is under attack, he takes the time to comfort us. Just as he did that night. Just as he did with his disciples. When, when, when he was the one that was facing the cross, he was the one that was about to be arrested that night. He's going to be arrested. And, and, and he, he takes that moment to bring comfort to them. And in an effort to, to calm the disciples' concerns, Jesus goes on to explain. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Very familiar. I've, I've talked on this many times. We've, we read some of these verses last week. Here's what he said. Verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Poor Thomas. <laughs> this poor guy. You talk about someone being labeled for their mistakes. That's Thomas. He will go down in church history as doubting Thomas. He's only mentioned eight times in the entire Bible, and four of them being when the 12 apostles are listed. So over a half, 50% of the moments where he's mentioned, he's just in a list of names. That's it. In the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Thomas is only mentioned in the listing of those names, a listing of the apostles, and there's no details about this man at all. The book of Acts does the same thing. It lists out the apostles, and, and he's included in that. But the book of John gives us three specific instances where Thomas is a little more than an extra in the, in the background of Scripture. He, he, he comes across as a little bit more than just someone in, in the background. He actually has some lines. He actually has something that, that God wants us to hear from his voice. And so the, the first time that we, we see this is in John chapter 11, where Jesus learns that his good friend Lazarus is sick and, and, and close to death. And, and his disciples try to, to talk him out of going to Lazarus because there are people in that vicinity of, of, of Judea um, that, uh, because it's near Jerusalem that they want to kill Jesus. They, they want to find him. They want to kill Jesus. And Bethany, where, where Lazarus and his sisters lived, it was near there. And so his disciples are like, this is not a good idea, Jesus. We, we don't need to go there. You don't need to go there. And, and, and after Lazarus dies, Jesus insists. He tells his disciples that he He's going to where Lazarus is at, to where his body is, is, is laid. And, and so Thomas speaks up. And again, Thomas, and he's probably taking the cue from Peter. He says what everybody else is thinking. John chapter 11, verse 16. He says, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, don't mistake his pessimism for loyalty. Don't mistake it. This guy 
is the doubter. And and I'm certain that Thomas was full of doom and gloom as he, in my opinion, sarcastically suggested that they follow Jesus and die in the process. In other words, this moron is heading to Jerusalem and they're probably going to kill him. Let's go with him. We're all going to die. You know, it's pessimistic. The second time that we hear something about Thomas, in John chapter 20, it's after there were reports of a resurrected Jesus living and breathing. And and, and Thomas stated that unless he could touch the scars in his hands, this is actually the third mention. We're going to talk about the second one in just a second, but this is the third mention of Thomas. Um, He says, unless I can touch the, the scars in his hands and feel the scar in his side, I will not believe. That's what he says. Unless I can physically touch them, um, I, I, I will not believe. And you know, Jesus obliged. He shows up. He, he walks in where they're having this conversation. And, and all of a sudden, he can feel the scars in his hands and in his side. Now, now poor Thomas. Poor Thomas. I, I hate it for this guy because this is where he gets his ageless nickname, Doubting Thomas. And some titles just seem to stick. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever labeled you something and it just stuck? You know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but sometimes titles stick. It's like Gossip and Gale. I apologize if your name is Gale. I, I don't mean any harm by it. Gossip and Gale, it just happens. Or uh, uh, Addicted Annie. It's, you know, she's dealing with addiction, and, and it just, that, that, that name just kind of follows her. That title follows her. You know, Chester Cheater. It's who he is. It's, it's, it's what he did. And, and, and those, those names just stick with people. And Thomas is going to go down in history as the doubter. But, but listen, listen to me, church, because I can relate. I can relate to Thomas. I'm thankful that Thomas said some of the things that he said. Because sometimes I have a hard time believing in a resurrected Jesus, and I never have the opportunity to see him. Oh, was I not supposed to say that because I'm the pastor? I'm not the only one in the room that sometimes wonders, is it real? Have I lived my entire life? Have I, have I walked through Christianity wondering? God, is this thing even real? And it's moments like today when I'm gathered with God's people and the presence of God floods a room that I realize that, the, that, that, that he, very is, he is very much a resurrected Savior and a resurrected Jesus. It's why we cannot neglect the assembling of ourselves together, church. I need this encouragement because it's here where I do believe. But, but I'm thankful for Thomas. I am. Because in his quest for truth, it represents me. It it represents you. We just want to know what's true. That's all it is. Moms, dads, let me tell you something. Don't be offended when when your teenager walks up to you and says, "I, I don't know what I believe. I don't know what is real. I don't know what is true. Don't be offended by that. Because you're looking at at a guy that was that teenager. I was was raised in a pastor's home, and there were certain things that I wasn't sure that I bought into, certain things that I had to to, to allow the Holy Spirit to convince me of. It it doesn't mean that they're damned to hell. It doesn't mean that that God's turned his back on them. It just means that, that, hey, they 
have to find the truth, and, and the truth is going to set them free. You have to understand that. And so Thomas is on this quest for truth, and, and it represents me, it represents you, that even when our faith is wavering, Jesus obliges and answers the doubter's inquisitive nature. Christ, listen, Christ is never fearful for your desire to know what is true, but here's what I want to tell you. Just don't settle for the, the ways of the world. Just don't settle for what the world is trying to convince you is true. Right? Now, the third instance in the book of John where, where Thomas is mentioned is in today's text. And uh, after Jesus majestically declares his soon departure to his, his father's house and tells the disciples that they know the way, this inquisitive nature of Thomas asks what everyone else wanted to know. John 14 and 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? We don't know. He, he, he says it. You, you, he, it's like, Jesus, you just went right on through there. You said you know the way, but we don't know the way. How can we know the way? And, and that's the bold statement that I want to talk about, the, the, the place where Jesus had to go there. In response to Thomas's in, in, inquiry, he, he says uh, this bold claim, verse 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus specifically refers to himself in these three monikers that we cannot ignore. And, and I just want to briefly touch on all three of these just for a moment because I think they're important to our Christian walk. And I think they're important to what God wants to do in our lives today. Um, because these three names that he refers to himself as, they, they weren't proper names of God. Because in the, in the Hebrew language, there are proper names of God that we find in the Old Testament. These were not the proper names of God rooted in the Hebrew. They, they weren't part of oral tradi traditions that were passed down through generations of God-fearing saints. That's not what we find. These names that Jesus used to describe himself, they were surprising. They were bold. And when Jesus said that he was the way, he was the truth, and he was the life, he was putting everyone within earshot. Uh, he was putting them on notice. He, he was dropping bombs and these bombs were about to blow up the status quo of Judaism he had to go there so let's look at them the first one is this Jesus said I am the way I am the way and in this works-based society uh, of first century uh, uh, Jews uh, um, first uh, th th they were taught that, that they had to earn their way into eternity. That if you crossed all the T's and you dotted all the I's, then you could work your way in, into a good standing with your heavenly Father, with God Almighty. And, and Jesus challenged that mentality, going against status quo, and, and, and said, no, there, there's, there's a different way, and that's not going to work, but here's the way. Here's the way. Uh, he, he, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know the way. You said we know the way. We don't know the way. And, and, and he says, well, well, here's the way. I'm the way. I'm the way. Thomas, I'm, I'm the way. Let me give you some staggering numbers. A 2020 poll by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University found that 48%, 48% of U.S. adults affirm this statement, this statement. Here's, they agree with this statement. 48% of U.S. adults agree with this. A person who is generally good or does enough good things for others, will earn a place in heaven. Nearly half of our society uh, uh, of, of U.S. adults believe that it, it, you can do enough good to get into heaven. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen, my salvation, my faith in Jesus Christ, 
It has nothing to do with me. My security for eternity, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with what he did. I can't serve enough. Listen, I love serving in the kingdom of God, but I cannot serve my way into salvation. I cannot serve my way into right standing with God. And, 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 and in that society, Jesus had to reprogram that thinking. In 2006, Warren Buffett, who at that time was the, the world's second richest man, he announced that he was going to donate 85% of his $44 billion fortune to five charitable donations. He said, I'm going to give away 85% of my $44 billion to five charitable foundations. Commenting on this extreme level of generosity, here's here's what Buffett said. Listen close. There is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. Giving away money? Now listen, I love our church. I love this church. I love it. Because you are generous. When you see a need, you meet that need. And it's something that makes this church uh, uh, just so unique. And, 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 and I do believe there's blessings that come with that. But I need you to understand, not one of us in this room can give enough money to earn our salvation. We can't buy. We can't work our way into heaven. Christ already paid that price for us. And how can you buy something that has already been purchased? It would be like this. It would be like me buying a, a brand new car for my wife. She gets home, I hand her the keys and say, baby, I bought you a car. And she says, oh, thank you. She turns the car on, immediately goes down to the dealership and demands to the salesman, I want to pay for this car. Well, ma'am, it's already been bought. No, I insist that I pay for this car. Why? Why do we insist on paying for our salvation? We can't earn it. We can't buy it. Jesus Christ, he paid the price so that we could be in right standing with God. All we have to do is just receive it. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't work your way there. And Jesus said the only way is through him. That is it. Now listen to this. This is concerning. And this is more concerning to me than a secular worldview of eternity. When I said 48% of U.S. adults think that you can basically do enough good to get into heaven, that's a secular mentality. What's more concerning to me is what's happening among believers. Because according to a 2021 survey performed by Pew Research, only 21% of all Christians believe that their faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. 21% of Christ followers. Only 21% believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, even though he said it boldly and he said it very plain. 58% of those surveys said that there are many religions that lead to heaven. That's not the world. That's Christians. That's Christianity. That we, we have to come to this understanding, church, that Jesus is the only way. He declared it. He is the only way. And don't buy into the lie that all roads lead to heaven. Before Jesus, there was no way. Before Jesus, there was no way to get there but, but he didn't just make a way, he is the way. He said, I am the way. If you're looking for how to get in right standing with God today, if you want to know how your sins will be forgiven, friend, it's Jesus Christ. And I will shout it boldly. I will be very plain with it. He had to go there, and I'm telling you, I have to go there. Jesus Christ is the only answer for your soul. Amen. Then he said, Thomas, not only am I the way, but you're a truth seeker and I'm the truth. Thomas was always searching for the truth. Well, here's the truth, Thomas. I'm the truth. 
And Jesus made sure with this, this, this comment that he makes to him that we know that there is a truth to live by and that he is that truth. And in a world where absolutes are non-essential, we must now more than ever seek to find the truth. Because Jesus said in John 8 and 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Listen to the, to, 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 to the effects of that verse. If you know the truth, The truth is what will set you free. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Listen to me, church. There are so many people right now that are bound by addictions and bondages and feeble mindsets. I know I'm going to offend someone, but I'm only doing this because I love you. I promise you. It's the only reason why. But Satan has confused individuals for years. He's, he's making them question their sexuality. He's trying to make them think that they're not what God created them to be. And, and for years, he, he was just trying to infiltrate the mind of the individual. But now I'm watching, and he's infiltrated the global church. Oh, God, help us, Lord. Churches within earshot of us. Oh, God. It's not hate, I promise you. If you could only see my heart, it's that I love you that much. He loves you too much to leave you that way. Satan has confused people. And now he's confusing churches. And just remember, the scripture says that God is not the author of confusion. Satan is the author of confusion. And he has orchestrated the confusion of God's most prized creation, humanity. And our society has, has bought into the lie that we are not who God created us to be. And no longer are people identified by their God-ordained gender. The enemy has convinced them that they can be whatever they want to be. You can't be whatever you want to be. You can't. I'm six foot two. I will never be a horse jockey. But it's crazier than that. If only it was, if it was that simple. God has created us the way he wanted us to be. With all of our imperfections, he still loves us. And he just says, I'm not going to leave you that way. I will perfect you in Christ Jesus. So, so, so why? Why is the enemy convinced people this? It's because if the enemy can convince you that your gender at birth does not define you, then he can convince you that there is not a, there, there is not a God that plans and orchestrates the ways of man. Because I, I can tell you this, if he can convince you that, that, that you're the wrong gender and th- that you can choose that, he'll eventually convince you that God is not real. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. The problem is we're not seeking God on this. And and parents, listen to me. And I know sometimes I get on my soapbox, and and today is is becoming that moment. I know it is. But we've got to teach our, our children their true identity and not allow them to be influenced by a falsified worldview. We, we've, got, we've got to find our, amen. Listen, listen. We must find our identity in Christ and not whatever whim of philosophy Satan is trying to brainwash us with today. Oh, God. Parents, be careful what you celebrate. Because what's celebrated is duplicated. Be careful what you celebrate. Now, I'm not up here preaching hate. No one deserves bigotry. 
No one deserves because they have a different uh, worldview than me. No one deserves to be mistreated. I, I don't want anyone to, to live under, uh, under human condemnation. That's not what I want at all. So, so understand this. I'm not up here preaching hate. A matter of fact, I, I believe that there is, is love for all sinners. I believe that. And the only way we're going to reach them is to extend our arms and say, you are welcome here. And I will say that. And I, I've been asked by emails numerous times, are you accepting? Are you inclusive? Absolutely. But I, I also explain to them that in the process of this, I need you to understand I'm going to preach the truth of God's word uncompromised. And, and, and I love you enough that I'm doing that for you. There are some things that I hope and pray that I'm wrong about. There's some things that I hope and pray that I'm wrong about because if I'm wrong, it means less people will spend eternity in a devil's hell. And I, I, you, should, you should pray that too. I pray that I'm wrong about some of the convictions that I have and some of the things I read in God's word because I, I want grace. I want grace. I want it for me. I want it for you. I want it for all. But until God shows me something different, I, I'm telling you, I just love the sinner too much to not preach the truth. And if I can convince one sinner to repent and realize who they are in Christ, the truth of their identity, then, then I will stand before a holy God with a clear conscience one day knowing that I did not settle for a half-truth, a distorted truth, which is ultimately a lie. Jesus said, he is the truth. And then he said, Thomas, not only am I the way and I'm the truth, but he said, I'm the life. Jesus said in John 10 and 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I came that they may have life and that they have it abundantly. The Greek word for abundantly there means over and above, more than is necessary. In other words, when, when something is abundant in your life, according to this, this Greek word, it, it means it's advantageous for you. When Jesus went to the cross, understand he died for our sins. That, that, that's great. That, 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 that's wonderful, right? But he didn't stop there. He went to the cross and, and he died for our sins, but he was resurrected. And because of his resurrection, we have eternal life. We too are resurrected with him. And that means that his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection are advantageous to our souls. What is the opposite of life, church? Death. And Satan is satisfied with people living there. And if you're not living in Christ, you're dying without him. And, and one day, one day, everyone will realize that they're either standing before a holy God with Christ or without him. And you're either living with him or you're dying without him. I need you to understand that I, I don't fear death. And I've said this before. But it's always like these moments when I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you get up there and you make bold statements like that. It might be your time before the day's over, right? Because <laughs> you, know? you, you read about these headlines, right? I don't fear death. And the reason why I don't fear death is because death has no hold on me. Right. It has no hold on me. As a child of God, it, it, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The only reason I have eternal life is because of Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. 
2 Corinthians 4 and 16 says that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Every day my spirit is being renewed in Christ Jesus. He's the giver of life. He's the sustainer of lives. I need Jesus and he is the life for Rocky McKinley. I, I will admit that. Now let me, let me bring this thing to a close here and then we're going to baptize some, some people. For those of you that, that don't know, my dad suffered with... I don't know why sometimes I can talk about that. Other times I can't. He ever had one of those weeks where he just needed to hear it. You better start playing. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this or not. My dad suffered with Alzheimer's during the final years of his life, and it's, it's a disease that I don't wish on any family. It's cruel. It's disheartening. You, you mourn their absence before they're, they're dead. It's so hard. One of the warning signs for us as a family came one evening when my dad, before he was diagnosed and he was still driving, there was this one evening that dad didn't come home. He was at a ball field in Bronson watching my nephew play. And when he left the ball field, what would have been a 10 to 15 minute drive for him back to, to mom and dad's retirement home. Dad never came home. Hours later, still, Dad wasn't home. And Mom called us boys. There's, there's four of us boys. She called us and expressed her concerns. And, and Dad was not answering his phone. This is before you could track people on a phone. We had no idea where he was at. And finally, hours later, Dad answered his phone. And, and, and just thank God, thank God that he finally answered the phone. And he was confused and he was lost. And I'm, I'm convinced he wasn't answering his phone because he was embarrassed. This was a take charge kind of man. Led great churches. Was a leader of leaders. But he couldn't find his way home in an area that he was extremely familiar with. He'd been driving around and he was hoping to find something that looked familiar, something that would just spark something in his mind, but nothing was making sense to him. And, and finally, my oldest brother got my dad to describe his surroundings. And there was a water tower involved. And my brother realized he's in Williston. 
he went to him so that dad could follow him back home. When we get lost in our sin, and listen, we all have been there. When we get lost in our sin, we have to realize Christ came, found us, so that we could follow him back home. Your spirit within you has a longing for a home that you don't even know you've ever experienced because you've never physically been there before. But you're homesick for it. That stirring within you of something is just not right. You're homesick for the place that he's preparing for you. And he said, I'm going to come and find you. So that where I am, there you may be also. Thanks for listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. To learn more about DCC, including our service times and location, visit us at destinycommunitychurch.org.